the emotional side, I had actually been living in a state of sympathetic dominance for over a decade. And that until I learned how to feel safe in my body, it didn't matter how perfect I ate or how many supplements I took or how perfect my sleep was. If my body was getting the message that we are running from a tiger metaphorically, it's not going to rest and digest and it's not going to heal. And all the other things I was trying to improve were not going to be optimal. So very long way of saying that for me, it was a very long and winding road. And I wish I could go back and tell my 15 years ago self that I needed to look at all of those pieces to begin with, but I'm really grateful for the journey because it taught me about all those pieces along the way. Doctor said you got PCOS, now go on girl, just lose some weight. Till I took the symptoms into my own hands and reversed them naturally. So I became a dietitian to help my sisters feel the best they've ever felt. Take a step in my direction if you wanna prove them wrong and take control of yourself. Welcome, Katie. Thanks so much for joining us today. We're so excited to talk to you all about health and wellness. Thank you for having me. I am excited to chat with you. I know we got to do a reverse on my podcast, and I'm excited for the conversation to go this way now. Absolutely. Uh, For our listeners, if you don't know Katie, she is from Wellness Mama, and she has an amazing podcast that Talia was just recently on. But you can also check out her website for recipes, natural remedies, a lot of great wellness products, and so much more. So thank you, Katie, for joining us. Thanks for having me. So in our in the episode we recorded for your podcast, you told me that you had hypothyroid. And I feel like this is such an interesting thing to touch on and to start with because you reversed it. And perhaps that's what kickstarted you into the health and wellness world. Please tell us more about it and how you did that. Yeah, absolutely. And in hindsight, I'm very thankful for the journey because I learned so much through the process. But while I was in it, it was a very frustrating process. And to give the short version, it began actually when I was pregnant with my first. And after delivering him, I started having some weird symptoms, but I kept getting dismissed by doctors and just being told that's normal for postpartum. Women just have to deal with that. It's all in your head. Um, And that went on for years and several different doctors before I actually was able to start getting answers. Um, But that actually was really the impetus for starting Wellness Mama, along with when my oldest was six weeks old, reading that for the first time in two centuries, that generation of children would have a shorter life expectancy than their parents. And reading that while I had this tiny newborn, it was just one of those moments in my life where I was determined that I was going to help change that. I had no idea how, but those two things lined up. And I started my own journey toward trying to figure out what was wrong with me since doctors weren't able to give me any answers. And my background was in journalism, actually. So I was familiar with how to do research. And I switched from um, just journalistic research into medical research and was sort of reading through all of everything I could find on PubMed and looking deep into studies. Um, It was a great lesson in learning to be your own health advocate. And it's the reason I now say in almost every podcast of mine, we are each our own primary healthcare provider. We can work with doctors and that's great and it's awesome to have good partners, but at the end of the day, the responsibility lies with us and we are each our own primary healthcare provider. And that was a lesson I learned very much by trial and error and the hard way in some ways. Um, I finally got a diagnosis of Hashimoto's after several years of working through different doctors and finally having to basically demand antibody tests because they would test just T3 or just one marker and say, Mm -hmm. it's within the range of normal, you're fine. And another lesson I learned there is often lab ranges, depending on the doctor you're working with, 
those are just based on averages of people who get the test. And often people mm -hmm. who get the test are having an issue. So, or it's an older population depending on the test. So the normal lab ranges are not by any means the optimal lab ranges. And I'm sure there's examples of this in the PCOS world as well. Oh yeah. Um, but it was, I think getting the diagnosis was awesome because then at least I knew what I was working with. And then that began the process of trying to sort of like figure out how to get to my own root cause and how to resolve the problem, which was its own sort of multi-year path. And when people ask me for an exact blueprint of what I did, I'm hesitant to be like, here's my checklist of exactly what I did. Because I think one lesson that is becoming more prominent in the whole health world is just how individualized it is. So I, I say, if anything, I think this is a great blueprint to start with as a point of research, but I don't think anything that I apply can be directly applied to someone else or vice versa. While we can learn from everybody out there, we can't, we're also different that we can't just directly apply the approach, but I think there's lessons in, um, in learning that. So I delved into the physical side. I went on an autoimmune diet for a while to just reduce inflammation. I know inflammation is also a big key with PCOS. And I dialed in supplements. I had this whole regime and I'm very systems oriented. So I was running spreadsheets and protocols and programs and trying everything I could think. And the last real puzzle piece for me that was my big lesson of the last few years was also honoring the mental and emotional side, which was the part I had been ignoring for a long time. And I think for women, whenever there's a stress component, this can be a really big key to at least look at and be willing to acknowledge. But I... um you know, in hindsight, I can look back and be like, if you want to create autoimmune disease, I have figured out how to do it. You would be really, really stressed. Don't sleep a lot through college and eat really crappy food for a long time. And you're well on your way to autoimmune disease. <laughs> Doing it is a little bit more complicated. And I realized because of the emotional side, I had actually been living in a state of sympathetic dominance for over a decade. And that until I learned how to feel safe in my body, it didn't matter how perfect I ate or how many supplements I took or how perfect my sleep was. If my body was getting the message that we are running from a tiger metaphorically, it's not going to rest and digest and it's not going to heal. And all the other things I was trying to improve were not going to be optimal. So very long way of saying that for me, it was a very long and winding road. And I wish I could go back and tell my 15 years ago self that I needed to look at all of those pieces to begin with. But I'm really grateful for the journey because it taught me about all those pieces along the way. Yeah, well, I was in it. I wanted to touch on the sympathetic dominance and the, the the mental health portion of it because, like you said, that's like the last place everybody focuses on. Because of course, we want to focus on the like the health of our body and just making sure that we're working on optimal level. But the mental health is usually the last place. Could you touch on that and like the sympathetic dominance that you worked on? Yeah, absolutely. So. I have always been very type A um, and I in high school had a pretty traumatic assault experience that I did not experience emotion in the moment. Like I realized in hindsight, I felt very helpless. So apart from the physical trauma, I felt very helpless. And that was the emotion I was unwilling to face. So my inner reaction that I wasn't really aware of was that I decided I will never feel helpless or hurt again. So I will mm -hmm. lock down all my emotions. I will make elaborate systems to control every variable in my life so that I never feel helpless. Well, it turns out that is really, really stressful to do for the long term. And I was using that. It was kind of like, I felt like my competitive edge of like, I was so driven, but it was a compulsion because it was what was keeping me safe. And I went through layers of trying to let that go where I was like, am I going to lose my edge? Am I going to not be able to work anymore? Am I going to, you know, not be competitive? And what I learned was you actually get to then just choose when you pick up the sword, you don't lose your edge, but mm -hmm. it was that in and of itself was its own process for me that involved Talk therapy at first, it didn't really help that much, but because the trauma for me was physical, somatic therapies were really, really helpful. And when I started addressing, you know, like we realized 
our mindset can change our body, but sometimes when the trauma is physical, addressing the body part somatically can actually help release the mind as well. And so the first time I had actually like hands-on somatic therapy, I kind of like had a, like a rewind through the trauma itself. And then when the therapy was over, um, if you've ever seen on maybe National Geographic, when an animal almost gets killed and then they get to safety and they shake and that's the adrenaline releasing in their body. Mm. I had never done that after the initial time. And so after this therapy, my body like caught back up and for like two hours, I uncontrollably shook and all that adrenaline started releasing. And I felt actually parasympathetic for the first time in well over a decade. What was that like? What did that feel Yeah, it was a wild adjustment. I felt like so relaxed. I could sleep better, but it also took, it was a little disorienting because I was so used to the, all the stress hormones and anybody who's run in a state of stress knows it's not great for you, but you do feel very on and it it helps you to function and be very driven. Um, So I had a little bit of adjustment there. And I also had to learn to sort of reintegrate and learn how to interact with my emotions because I had just locked them down for so long that even through the course of having now six kids, I had never once yelled at them. I didn't cry. Like I had locked my emotions down. And so I had to learn how to have a healthy relationship with my emotions after that. That is so interesting. We could do a whole episode just (laughs) on that. Seriously. Well, if somebody wanted to manage their sympathetic dominance, what do you think they would do? Because I think this is a really important thing to touch on because this mental emotional component really affects our hormones and our ability to create the hormones necessary to ovulate, to have our periods, um, the pituitary gland, the way it communicates with the rest of our body. It There's a psychological component to it. And a lot of times people are just like, oh, just relax. Like you'll get your period, just relax, you know? And it's like, you can be on a beach relaxing, but you can still have that psychological or like adrenaline, high adrenaline, like thing happening in your body, no matter what, even if you're on vacation. So where does a person start in healing that component? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it's a little bit multifaceted. I do think the physical aspects are really important. I think it works better when you sort of address both at once. So you want to do the things we know physically to support hormones, like getting the right light exposure at the right times and making sure you're actually nourishing your body. So it's not being signaled that it's starving and make sure that you're getting sleep. So you're not in that constant, like almost pre-diabetic state of glucose that's going to jack up your cortisol. And I know you talk about these vases because we got to talk about it on mine, but I also think at least delving into the other side and doing things to facilitate more parasympathetic time for your body, which could be as simple as you learn some breath work because breath is a very powerful tool to signal the body that it's safe. So even just learning breathing patterns during the day or right before bed over time actually can change your sort of autonomic nervous system breathing patterns. So if you train slower, calmer nasal breathing during the day, you will start to integrate that at night as well. And over time, that's a compounding change that will help with your stress level. Um, Same thing with very simple at-home things like tapping. Uh, Your listeners may have heard of something like that, but if you're in sympathetic dominance, that sort of is a nervous system disruptor that can help bring you back into parasympathetic. And there are great protocols online that are even free that you can go through for if you're having anxiety, if you're having whatever your particular thing is, there's sort of tapping protocols to walk you through that. But if someone's aware of something deeper or that is a really big thing that they need to work through. I'm a big proponent of when needed, you know, find a therapist, find a partner, find someone who can help you through that. Cause often if it's something more severe, it's you do sometimes need a hand to hold while you go through it. Absolutely. Yeah. I a hundred percent agree on the therapist part as well. I mean, 
full trans full honesty i see a therapist like once or twice a month and it just helps tremendously and just like even if you're not like going through something it just keeps you your um your brain stronger like a muscle to deal with like stress anxiety and things like that also there's um have you ever done a salt bath like one of those pods that you just float it's called float float floating have you done it I have. And those are fascinating because it's the, their goal is to kind of almost be full sensory deprivation, which um, they're trying to keep the water at the same temperature as your body. There's no light and typically no sound. And since you're not having any sensory experience from touching anything, um, some people will have really profound experiences in those almost having like sort of like hallucinations or psychedelic experiences because their nervous system has never gotten to turn off to that degree. Um, I think those are phenomenal if if you're able to do them. Um, One tip I've learned for myself, and again, why we can't directly apply anything to anyone else. I am an inverse modulator of certain things. So magnesium wakes me up. So if I'm going to float, I do it in the morning or else I'll be up all night. But that's for most people would be the opposite. Most people floating in the afternoon would help them sleep. Yeah. Like if we take magnesium, we like get sleepy immediately. Inverse modulator. What does that mean? Like the opposite of what that what it's supposed, supposed to, to do, do. would happen, right? Your body yeah, just so, processes it different. Yeah. For years, I thought something was wrong with me because I would take like even like CBD or magnesium or things that people would take to relax. And I would, it was like a clock. I would be awake for 12 hours, no matter what I did. And finally, actually talking to the White House doctor who I had on my podcast, um, Ted Ashikoso, he said, oh, you're just an inverse modulator on this one particular pathway. Just take those things in the morning. Nothing's wrong with you. You're, you're just an inverse modulator. Wow. That's super That's really interesting. interesting. Really interesting. And going back to the float tank too, we actually did it one time. And from what I've heard, you have to do it multiple times to really acclimate to like being in that uh, zone. And like, I remember the first, like it was an hour long session and the first 55 minutes or 50 minutes, I was uncomfortable. And the last five minutes I was in this like mm-hmm. zone where I thought I was like floating on a cloud and like I was somewhere else. And then it just Im- immediately ended right when I got into the zone. So maybe next time. Tip there too, if someone's going to do a float tank, try to go into it with a breathing pattern in mind and Mm. try to stay on your breath while you're in there. And if you do a few float sessions with really good breathing, you can often then at home do the same breathing pattern and start to get the same response as if you were in the float tank without having to go back so much. Um, Another thing I haven't done yet, but I'm considering for this year is kind of an extreme version of that, which is called um, a darkness retreat where you're actually in a cave-like environment for three or five or seven days um, with no human contact, no phone, no light. And people say it's very- you by yourself and they say it's very profound, but obviously you're listening to your inner voice and only your inner voice for <laughs> days. So I think as a mom though, the first day would be blissful and I would just maybe yeah. catch up on sleep from the past 15 years, but yeah. And then after that, it kind of becomes like solitary confinement to a certain degree. <laughs> Wait, it's dark, like dark, dark for it's four dark. days. Yep. And I think you can choose to either fast or have food given to you or whatever that I haven't looked oh into God. it too deeply, but I thought that would be a really fun challenge i try to do something every year that challenges me and scares me a little and like that i think might qualify yeah that qualifies i feel like i would get depressed without some sunlight you know i get like seasonal depression like <laughs> oh rain, i totally I'm, like, do I'm dying too. i don't know <laughs> it's intriguing i think for two reasons um there's that camping study are you familiar with that one with circadian biology that even three days of camping away from artificial light could totally reset your circadian rhythm oh yeah Um, And I think that would be profound. And also being in the dark and away from human contact, and especially if I didn't do the food, that would be like a complete dopamine fast. So while I might be like in there kind of like craving the light so bad, I can only imagine that like when I come off a five-day water fast, food tastes so good that I'm like blissful. So I can only imagine if you haven't even seen light in five days and then you get like light and food, you're probably just completely on cloud nine. 
100%. I mean, I can totally attest to the camping thing. We went wilderness backpacking for just one night because you're in the wild. Like, it was scary at night. Like, you're, it's like complete darkness. And then you wake up just from that one night of doing it. We felt different just coming back to like civilization. Just like it was Joshua Tree. And it just felt like we, we just, it felt completely like, like we took a break from everybody, work and everything, and just like came back to civilization. It was amazing. Camping is everything. <laughs> Yeah. That's, and I think that also just speaks to how our biology is so connected to nature. And like yeah. so many of our modern problems could be solved by just doing things a little bit more like nature intended, whether it's morning sunlight, which I think is one of the most profound things we can do for our health and it's free or occasionally going on a camping trip and resetting our entire circadian rhythm or just getting more sunlight in general. Like we're, what's the saying? Like we need hydration and sunlight were basically just complicated houseplants with emotions. Like we are still <laughs> in tune with the light cycles and we don't get that enough. Yeah. Yeah. So good. I mean, just like a thousand years ago, our ancestors were literally outside 99.9% of the time. And now we're inside 99.9% of the time. Yeah. And like our biology hasn't caught up with that kind of a change in just like I mean, a few hundred years. Grandma's generation were like village people who were out and in nature and not inundated by technology and like didn't even have like an oven you know went to like the local oven where everyone would go i mean like the, this kind of like basic living yeah and they all lived to like 100 <laughs> did you hear about that sister who took ovacetol and finally got her period after a year of not having one incredible I see those kinds of messages on Instagram a lot. How does that even happen? Well, Ovacetol helps with healing insulin resistance, a common root issue that most PCOS sisters have. And by targeting insulin resistance, we're seeing sisters kick those crazy cravings, finally regulate their periods, ovulate, and improve their egg quality. Each packet of Ovacetol has a 40 to 1 ratio of myo-inositol and d chiroinositol This ratio is similar to the ratio that should be found in the body, but with women like like me who have PCOS, this ratio is often imbalanced. So taking Ovacetol can be super effective in treating insulin resistance starting from the root of the issue. So awesome. It tastes like nothing. So just warn me when you put it in a cup so I don't drink it. You got it, boo. Check out the link in the description to get 15% off your order. I think it's easy in the health world, especially to get like enticed by the newest health trend or the biohacks. And those I think absolutely have their place. But also at the end of the day, I'm like, if you're not doing the basics, like if you're not getting sunlight, if you're not getting sleep, if you're not hydrating, like do those things first before you go spend tons of money on fancy supplements or expensive biohacks, because they're all going to work better if you get those basics in place first. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So you mentioned autoimmune diet, and I know that you're a big prom proponent of um, eating a lot of protein. So let's dive into some of the ways that you change your diet to improve your response to the hypothyroid. There are like 30% of women, 33% of women with PCOS who have hypothyroid. So it's always good to know like what someone else did. That doesn't necessarily mean that is like the end all be all and everyone should do it. But it is really, I felt like, uh, when I was dealing with PCOS, it was really nice to just like, see what other people are doing, try it, see if it works for me. So I'd love to hear what you did. Yeah, it was a bit of an experimentation, but I went pretty extreme autoimmune paleo for a while. And I'm not a big proponent of staying on a super restrictive diet long-term. I think avoiding the processed stuff, always a great idea. And if like a person never eats vegetable oils, processed sugar and processed gluten again, ever, 
that's great. Um, but I think super, super restrictive is not ideal for the really long term. But for me, for a few months, it was helpful to be off um, gluten and dairy for sure, but then also off nightshades and seeds. Like I went really restrictive for a while just to let my body kind of reset physically. And then I experimented bringing things back in and just seeing what my body tolerated best. And so I feel like I got the eat clean part of that diet figured out pretty early on. The part I had to learn later to your point was the protein side because having Hashimoto's for so long and struggling to lose weight for so long, I had started just eating less and less and less and less. And I think this is one of my soapboxes for women is like, you hear that, like, you know, eat less, move more. And that's a yes. And with caveats, if you're doing that below the level of what your body actually needs to know that it's nourished, you're going to cause a stress response. that's going to make it really difficult to lose weight. I know you talk about this on the hormone side with PCOS as well, but I had to learn to actually nourish my body more. And so when I went through the somatic stuff and I started dropping weight, I realized like I had under eaten for so long and under, by default, just sort of undernourished myself. So I sort of had to work my metabolism back up and learn to eat enough food to actually signal my body that we're not starving anymore and kind of this reverse dieting thing. And it makes sense when you think about it logically, which I wasn't doing back then, but if you want to make a fire bigger, like your metabolism, if you want to make it bigger, what do you do? You put fuel on it. You don't starve it of fuel and then expect it to get bigger. Um, so that was a slow process for me of learning and eating enough protein and focusing on micronutrient density per volume of food instead of calories or macros helped a lot. So now it's funny. I used to track food to try to make sure I wasn't eating too much. And now I track food to make sure I'm eating enough. And then I'm hitting my protein targets per meal to be able to stimulate protein synthesis and muscle growth. And also looking at the nutrient density for the food. And so everything I'm eating, I'm trying to ask myself, what is the most nutrient dense option I can have for this particular thing? Not like what has the lowest calories, but if it's a choice between just like white rice, good source of carbs, if you need simple carbs or like winter squash or beets or something that has more micronutrients, I'll try to choose the one that's going to be more micronutrient diverse. And I think those two things, the protein and the nutrient density really helped signal my body over time. Like it's safe. You're being nourished. You don't need to hold on to extra weight. And not only that, let's build muscle, which by the way, is one of the biggest correlates to longevity is lean muscle mass. Yes. So yeah, I think it's been, it's sad that women have gotten the advice for a long time to just eat less and not focus on protein and muscle because um, of that fear that we're going to get bulky, which now I laugh at because I've been trying so hard for a year to build muscle. And I'm like, you don't accidentally wake up looking like <laughs> it does not happen. That's <laughs> so funny. But we're such big proponents of like, like you said, lean muscle mass. And for example, incorporating like strength training. And like, there are so many different examples of strength training now, like Pilates or there's different classes, but but like you said, it, it's, it does so much to one improve metabolism or improve insulin resistance if you have if you have a blood sugar dysregulation. But not just that, but as you get older too, especially especially for for women, as you get older, you start to lose a percentage of your muscle mass every single year, and that actually results in higher like mortality rates, unfortunately, and higher just um, disabilities because your your bones are now weaker because the muscles aren't protecting it. It's actually like a it's almost like your your body gets weaker and weaker every year when you don't like keep up with like the exercises or the strength training and things like that. So it's it's so important. Absolutely. And the good news is though, like, yeah, age-related sarcopenia absolutely happens, but we've seen in so many studies, 
we can be proactive. And there are yeah. so many cases of women actually building muscle decade over decade when they're consistent with it, that I think that's really encouraging. And, and to your point, the two metrics I look at are like lean muscle mass and how much I can lift. I stopped caring about the number on the scale and started caring about the number I was picking up off the ground. And then also I watch grip strength because this is a little bit more obscure one, but there's a lot of data correlating strong grip strength with longevity. And it's because it's also showing sort of your nervous system capacity as well as your strength. And you can buy a grip strength tester on Amazon for I think like 20 or $30. And that's just a fun metric that I'm like, I want to just see that number gradually go up over time because that's giving me a good um, good reading of what's happening in my nervous system and with my lean muscle mass without having to do lab testing or anything extensive. Well, I have to say as a personal trainer, I'm really impressed because grip strength is super important because sometimes people think like, oh, like biggest muscles is the biggest like strength factor, but you can have the biggest muscles, but if your hand can't hold on to the bar, you can't carry it up. So like, and that goes to back to saying like, how strong is your, your nervous system? Can you actually pull yourself up if you were like, let's say hanging from a cliff, you know, like your, your grip strength really matters in that kind of time. So yeah, hundred percent agree. Do you wear gloves when you lift weights? I don't. I know there's lots of opinions on this. I don't wear like gloves or those little like grip helper things. Um, and I lift pretty heavy weights. Like I have multiple lifts that are two X body weight or more, but I was like, you know what? I want the, like, I want the calluses. I want my hands to actually be able to handle what I'm doing. Um, but I know they can also be really helpful. So I'm nothing against them. I just personally was like, you know what? I'm just going to get through this and get strong hands. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm the same way. I don't, I don't wear gloves. I just like, like you said, I want, I want the calluses and I feel like it's more natural. Like I'll get naturally stronger with my hand if I just do it bare. I wear Although I will say like, if I do a hip thrust, I do put a pad on that bar. Cause like oh, a straight oh, yeah, bar yeah. with like 400 pounds on my hips hurts. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if I yeah. do a squat, I'm putting a pad too. Cause like, it'll just hurt my neck. Oh, definitely. Plus the, that is like hitting your ovaries kind of like, it's pretty low. Exactly. And I'm like all, all for the very soft stuff. padding. on the <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I use the glove because I feel like the calluses would hurt too much. <laughs> My nails are long and I just like yeah. need the protection, <laughs> but that's awesome. So I know you talked about supplements, but before we get into what supplements you took, I wanted to ask you about circadian rhythm, because I feel like what you said earlier is so true. You really have to get in control of the circadian rhythm, make sure you're getting your light, you're drinking your water, you're doing all these other things before you start implementing um, the things that might be more expensive and the next level. So before we get into supplements, tell us more about how you control your circadian rhythm, manage your sleep, and so on. Yeah, this is one of my favorite topics. And like you said, I think this is one of the easiest things we can do for our health. And almost everything related to this is low or no cost and also works on kids. And so for any moms listening, if kids are having sleep trouble, these are easy, inexpensive or free things you can try that help your kids sleep, which I feel like every mom wants their kids to sleep better. Um the first one I'm so glad to hear talked about so much now, even Andrew Huberman has been talking about this in almost every podcast, but that morning sunlight, and I, I still feel like there's some misconceptions or people aren't quite sure of the how-to of this, but it's one of the most profound things I think we can do hormonally when we do it consistently, which is that as soon as possible after waking up or after sunrise, if you wake up before the sun rises, is to get outside and make sure that that sunlight is hitting the light receptors in your eyes. So this means not through a window, ideally not through glasses. So even if you wear glasses, just take them off for like five minutes while you're outside. And this is signaling your pituitary gland and your hypothalamus, and it's starting the clock for your master clock, which lives in your suprachiasmatic nucleus in your brain. And that's going to signal later on our melatonin production 
which has its own whole host of cascades. But that morning sunlight exposure for even just five or 10 minutes can increase things like dopamine, serotonin, cortisol by as much as 50%. And I know in the PCOS world, there's a lot of talk about cortisol, but we actually want that good natural spike in the morning and we want it to decline naturally at night. And I know when my hormones were off, I actually had sort of an inverse pattern for a while and I had to get those back in range. And light is a great signaling mechanism for that because when it comes to circadian biology, the three strongest signals that we have for that are light, food timing, and temperature. And so the things that have helped me the most were um, getting that morning sunlight as soon as possible, hitting the eyes is the key there. While we, when we talk about other forms of sunlight and midday sunlight, we're also concerned with it hitting the skin for vitamin D, but that morning time is actually not the greatest for vitamin D anyway. So it's really just important to get your eyes out there. I personally put 10 to 15 minutes of midday sun on that non-negotiable list as well. And as much skin area as possible, depending on where you live, that will come into play for vitamin D, but also that is like reinforcing the signaling of the morning sunlight for your circadian biology. Also food timing lines up here. And I think this is one thing that with all the advice around intermittent fasting and time-restricted eating, which there is a lot of data on, I think for women and especially women who have any kind of hormone issues, if you're going to try that, and I know we talked about this a little bit, is like shift that window earlier because food and especially protein is an important signaling mechanism for circadian biology. So as soon as possible after waking, you want to signal your body with food and with protein that, that we are now awake. It is bright outside nutrients are coming in. And if you want to shorten your eating window, shorten it at night. So as a personal rule, I try to not eat after the sun sets, mm. just to like give my body time before bed to digest and to be able to get into a good state of deep sleep. And then also temperature is a good signaling mechanism. So I tell people avoid sauna and cold plunge too close to bed because that's a pretty big swing in your temperature. There are ways you can use it um, strategically there, but those are a little bit more nuanced. In general, you want to keep your sleep environment cool especially like I use a chili pad to keep my actual bed cold. But when you have a little bit cooler of a sleep environment, that signals your body to go into deep sleep as well. So I think those are three little easy triggers. Like we're going to eat anyway. We can mix up the timing of our food to play with that. We're going to hopefully get light anyway. By getting it a little bit earlier in the day, you can start that master clock process. And then for the same reasons you want morning sunlight, you want to avoid bright light at night because that's confusing to our brains and to our circadian biology. If they're getting bright light from overhead light, that's signaling that it's still daytime and that will mm. suppress melatonin production. Um, for people who want to get a little bit more geeky with this in the house. So when we look at light exposure, bright light in nature always comes from overhead. So if you're going to use one of those wake up lights or bright daytime mimicking bulbs, put them above the level of your head because that's where you would get them in nature. And the receptors for those are higher up in your mm -hmm. eyes. When it comes to red light exposure, those always come at eye level or below in nature. Think of sunsets, campfires, those are all low level. So in my house, I have um, daylight mimicking bright light bulbs in the ceiling. And then I have lamps on tables that have red light or low blue, like no blue and green light bulbs that are dimmer. And so at sunset, a timer switches, the lamps go on, the house gets darker, calmer, and the big bright lights go off. And that helps everybody in the house start to kind of shift into that, like, it's time for sleep soon environment wow. and has helped my kids sleep a lot too. That is so smart and like, just a great way to use technology for your advantage. That's so cool. That's awesome. Would, would like an amber bulb also work too? Like those bulbs that are just like, like amber color? Absolutely. Yeah. You can definitely get is like, 
extreme with that as you want. Like I know Dr. Jack Cruz would say, you shouldn't even have lights in your house. But um, I say like do the bright bulbs overhead and then just get either the amber ones that are just lower wattage. So they're not bright or there's now even like certified no blue light bulbs if you want to get really fancy with it. But anything that's like a lower light at eye level, that's like a more orangey hue is helpful. Nice. Yeah. And going back to the body temperature when you're going to sleep too, I was smiling when you were saying that because last night I, I did the sauna at like 9 p.m. And then I had a, I had trouble sleeping because I think my, my body was just way too hot and it should be cooler, like you said. So that's funny. And we put the heater on too. Yeah, the heater was on like too. It was just all too much. <laughs> I just want to say one more thing. So the heat at night, how does that play into circadian rhythm? Like I know it should be a cool environment when you're going to bed so I make the room cooler, but not the bed cooler. Cause I feel like I would just freeze to death overnight. I think I'm there's very good. much like an individual threshold there for sure. For me, it's like, I just got used to like, it's easier to cool my bed and it uses less energy, I think, than to cool my whole house. And I live in a very hot climate. So it's not often that I'm like turning on the heat. Oh. It's more often I need to cool things down. And the chili pad goes anywhere from 55 degrees to 110 degrees. So I can figure out where is like cool, but not shivering Mm -hmm. and kind of get in that range in the studies it's in the like high 60 seems to be the sweet spot for sleep as far as but that's they're looking at ambient room temperature so when you're actually cooling your bed you don't necessarily have to get it that cool to get the same effect um but in general it's just easier to cool a bed than cool the whole environment and if you have kids who get cold more easily it's easier to like i can make my bed substantially colder than the whole house then okay nice that's awesome. We need to do that. <laughs> I wanted to uh, jump to your your wellness brand because like something that me and Tyne are kind of like obsessed with is like non-toxic, basically household items now. Like because like we, we I mean, throughout our younger years, like when we we're in our teen years and stuff, we didn't know anything about that. And then in our 20s, we learned a lot more. And especially when, once we got married, we started to make the switches kind of slowly. Like we first switched out our shampoo um, and then we switched our like body soaps different kinds of things like that. But could you, could you tell us about your wellness brand and, and how you focus on those kind of non-toxic products? Yeah, I'm sure you guys have already explained this on here quite a bit, but um, women especially are exposed to a lot more chemicals than we used to be. And estimates range anywhere from, I think I've seen 186 per day up to over 600 a day. But we do know that even newborn babies are born with over 200 chemicals in their bloodstream already. So this is a widespread problem. Over 80,000 of these have not been approved for human user. We just don't know if they're dangerous or not. And like I said, women especially get a a higher exposure to those. And I realized as I was on my own health journey, I had gone to the extreme and I was making everything at home. And there was a point where there was not any plastic in my whole house. I was making everything, beauty products, everything at home. And I realized that even my friends who are most into healthy living and who ate organically and who had really good sleep hygiene, and they had all these other things dialed in, they still were using the kind of name brand oral care products and hair care products. And it was because at that time, those were what worked better. And there weren't natural alternatives that worked as well. And people weren't willing to have their teeth and their hair not look good in the name of being healthier. And I realized that also from an 80-20 perspective, those two categories are where we got a lot of our exposure, especially as women. And so by being able to shift those two things that we could reduce people's exposure a lot. And within a family, most people use those products. But I realized if people were going to make the switch, these things had to work as well as the conventional ones, or they just weren't going to use them. And so I set out on this really long quest. The toothpaste, for example, had 97 iterations before it finally got approved. And I did like a lot of those myself and worked with chemists um, because I also wanted to go into the biology of, you know, what's happening in our mouth. We have an oral microbiome. We have enamel processes happening that are 
dependent on fat soluble vitamins in the body and also minerals in the saliva and things like hydroxyapatite, which is the naturally occurring mineral that's found in our tooth enamel, but that can deplete with stress, with poor lifestyle habits, with et cetera. So how do we give the body the building blocks to build that back? And my philosophy with it was also like, of course, we should be avoiding the toxic stuff. To me, that should be like the baseline. That should be a given. But if our skin is our biggest organ, and if anything that goes in our mouth or on our skin also goes into our body, that means we can use things that go on our body to benefit us as well. So like, how can we put good ingredients in these things that actually benefit the body? And mm -hmm. that's kind of where we started with with all of the products and now have hair care and toothpaste and deodorant. And we're working on new things all the time, but I really just wanted to tackle that problem of chemical exposure that was 80, 20 the products that everybody in a family was going to be interacting with and give people a realistic option to replace the other alternatives that, that did work better for a long time, but with a natural one. Yeah. And it is true that I, I could see why women are exposed more to it because like women would use more different kinds of skin products and things like that versus men. And as a result, expose more to those chemicals. And yeah, it's really interesting. Really interesting. It's everywhere. I mean, I think it's so important, especially toothpaste to use it twice a day. Yeah. Shampoo, conditioner, you're in a hot shower and you're like scrubbing your skin. So you're more absorbing more of that, you know, if it's toxic. So I think all of these points are super important. And you had sent us your toothpaste and deodorant, which we're using. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this morning we put on the deodorant full honesty i was using tom's like fluoride free before before yours and i started using your the charcoal toothpaste i personally like the charcoal to toothpaste a lot more because i feel like it's actually like i don't know i feel like it's making my teeth look a little bit brighter versus the tom's but I really like it i was curious when you said hair care what do you uh, what kind of products do you have for hair care because there's, there's a lot of women with pcos who um are looking for like hair care products Absolutely. Um, what a side note on the toothpaste too. So most toothpaste, if you read, there's like a poison control label on the back. And I once sat with a friend who had to call poison control because she thought her kid had eaten a tube of fluoride toothpaste. And they pretty much told her like, that's really bad. There's not even a lot we can do if a child's ingested that much fluoride. Um, but wow. the one I sent you guys actually, because it has hydroxyapatite in it, which is that thing that your body recognizes as the bioavailable nutrient in tooth enamel, you can actually just spit after you wash your, or brush your teeth and not rinse everything out. And if it sits on your teeth overnight, it'll actually help brighten your teeth even more while you sleep. Um, but on the hair care side, so there's this whole science behind the hair follicles and the cycle of the hair. And we looked into that and really wanted to nourish the hair follicles. And so it's all natural EWG safe ingredients. Um, but we wanted to find ones that would actually stimulate the growth of new hair over time because for thyroid patients as well, it's, you often see hair loss. And so we were like, how can we put herbs and plant-based ingredients that are going to signal the body to keep those hair follicles strong and healthy? Um, so things like if it, it's also like a hair food versus a lot of traditional shampoos are basically harsh detergents that are stripping everything out of your hair over time and causing breakage. So I tell people there can be a little bit of an adjustment period when you actually start feeding your hair versus stripping away everything in your hair, which takes about a week. But one thing that can help that process is wash your hair as normal with the shampoo, but then leave the conditioner on for a little while so that your body can actually, like your hair will soak up some of those nutrients and it'll shorten that curve of your hair adjusting to actually having nutrients in it again. Very cool. Would these hair care products um, be helpful for some people who are experiencing like hair loss, for example? Do they have like rosemary oil or um, pumpkin seed oil, things like that? And nettle and neem. Um, absolutely. Oh, very and nice. 
we're working on a hair serum as well, but I also love the kind of ancient trick. I think so much can be going back to ancient wisdom while we're trying to be all fancy with our biohacks, but just using natural oils and putting a little bit of rosemary essential oil in there and massaging it into the scalp before bed. A lot of women have great success with that. And that's yes. an easy one to do at home. Yeah, we've heard about that too. We, we recommend that as well. It's it's a tricky subject because we, we talk about this a lot with, you know, hormone disrupting chemicals or like endocrine, endocrine disrupting chemicals and of course, it's it's a difficult subject because we know like sometimes it can be you know like when you when you compare like a name brand toothpaste to a toothpaste that's actually chemical free and like you know healthy compared to it, you see the price difference and a lot of times people are like oh it's not worth it or or generally people might maybe like oh it's like I already have so much to worry about I don't want to worry about my shampoo or so which we totally understand and we totally get which is why we always recommend like go at a slow pace like. Don't just like replace everything in your household, like laundry, your laundry detergent, your shampoo, body soap, et cetera. Do, do the things you feel are the most important, the most critical, the things you use the most. Like toothpaste, I feel since we all use it twice a day, hopefully, um, that it's probably the most important area to maybe switch out and then eventually shampoo and et cetera. Yeah, that's a great point. And just the, the psychology of habits too. If you do things in small baby steps, they're more likely to stick than if you try to just drastically change everything in your life in one day. Yeah. And one thing to add to like, uh, why are those name brand things so cheap is because like sometimes chemicals are cheap, right? Chemicals are so easy to make. You can just like, mass produce them in, in like vials and stuff. And that's why like a lot of those name brands are much cheaper because they're just using those, you know, synthetic chemicals. Yeah. The natural version is probably, you know, extracted differently. It's put together differently. We started a supplement company and just finding the materials for the supplements, specifically curcumin. There's lots of places that make curcumin, but which one is the best? There's so much that goes yeah. into it. I can only imagine when you were creating your products, how much thought went into selecting each and every ingredient, because it is something that's well for your body. It's called wellness. It's supposed to be healing, not, you know, easy way out, cheap chemicals. So yeah. And I think, yeah, that's huge. And it does take a lot more research. And um, I, I personally think it's worth it, but I understand the like cost difference for people. And I know budgets are definitely a concern as well. Yeah. Um, for me, that's why we decided to go and get certified as a B Corp as well, because to me, it was also like, as a mom, I care about if the people who are helping get these ingredients are being paid fairly. And if they're in good working conditions and that everything was sourced ethically and we're not depleting resources that are super limited for the planet. Um, so it's a lot more level of certification, but to me, that just felt really important. That's amazing. Yeah, That's amazing. And if people want to find your products as well as your podcast and more resources, where, where can they go? Um, so the products are at wellness.com, which is wellness with an E on the end. And then everywhere else online, I'm just wellness mama. So the podcast is the wellness mama podcast and everything is hosted on wellnessmama.com. That's amazing. Well, th thank you so much, Katie, for joining us today. For the listeners, if you want to get more information, uh, we, we're going to link all the, all the websites and information in the description of this podcast episode. Thank you again, Katie, for joining us and offering all this val valuable information about hypothyroid, supplements, um, endocrine disrupting chemicals, and so much more. Thank you for having me. You guys are great interviewers, and this was really fun. Oh, uh, thank, thank you. you. Thank you. We appreciate it. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, you have to come check out The Sisterhood. It's my monthly membership site where sisters just like you are learning how to move through the stages of PCOS. From stage one, cold and alone at the doctor's office, to stage five, nailing the PCOS lifestyle, gluten and dairy free. Get ready to finally feel in control of your body again.